Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Don't, don't be upset by a northern bloke. Ronaldo, he looks at me, smiled, he's never done it again. What's in there, Mickey? He went, oh, that's about 300 grand in there, kid. If I'm on the opposite end of an argument, Piers Morgan, that's a very comfortable position that I'm happy to be in. I think I'd be up there with one of the most irritating cricketers. Tom, we were getting on so well until that question. <laughs> you boys are going to get absolutely hammered. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast, the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic teenagers who introduce some of the biggest names within the world of sport. From world champions, World Cup winners, international athletes, Ryder Cup golfers, Ashes heroes, and many other sportsmen and women, we delve deep into their sporting career, the highs and the lows, and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. But that's enough for me. I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, Tom and Avatar, who host the podcast, and I'll let them introduce today's guest. See you later. Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Good morning, Avatar. How are you? I'm fine. Good, good. So as you heard in the introduction, it says Tom and Avatar, but sadly Tom can't join us today. So yeah. myself, Adam, is going to jump in and support Avatar. So we can we can do this together. Yeah, together. Yeah? Yeah. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is an Australian cricketing legend. He has played 264 times for his country and scored nearly 15,000 international runs. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew Hayden. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot, guys. Really uh, appreciate the invitation. And um yeah, thanks for the introduction as well, Adam. That was lovely. Thank you. No problem. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Um, we always like to start our podcast off with some quickfire questions. So these aren't necessarily to do with cricket, and we'll get on to your cricketing career in a sec, but we've got some quickfire questions to ask, if that's okay? Yep. Do you want to start off after? Okay. If you could go back to one year in your life, what would it be and why? Uh, it'd be... 1979 or 1980, I was living in country Kingaroy where my, my um, and I would have been, what, eight or nine at the time, but I absolutely loved living in the country. I loved regional Australia. I love how connected our community was. I was on tractors, you know, driving around with my dad, you know, 
managing the property, looking after the animals. I just love that. It was such a great time in my life. So I was, I was reading just before this interview that you lived, was Brisbane the closest city? And that was nearly two, three hours away from you. Three hours, Adam. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So that's quite a, a very rural upbringing, which is quite hard for us in England to, to think about because our closest city is 10 minutes away. So was it a very close-knit community, close family? Yeah, look, it is. It, you're right. Like in England, you, you get cities mixing with regional communities and they're all within a shooting distance from each other. But, you know, in Australia, it's such a massive country. I, I mean, I would drive literally two cricket games with my parents eight, nine hours ahead of a Saturday morning match, you know, at eight or nine o'clock in the morning. So we'd literally get up at like one o'clock in the morning to go travel to a cricket game. So the vastness of space would ex- would basically be the same distance that I'd go to what uh, go to uh, to a cricket game would be the entire length of the UK. So it's a massive country. Who is the most famous people in your phone book? <laughs> After I've got a quite a list of famous people in my um, phone book. I'm just trying to scroll to that in my head. That's the most. <laughs> uh, <laughs> from a UK perspective, I think maybe uh, maybe the Neville boys, Gary and Phil. I played cricket with um, Gary and Phil uh, at Greenmount Cricket Club in the Berry League in the in the just above Central Lanks, and uh, yeah, they were a couple of good old boys. Um, but yeah, you'll be surprised. Like over the time, you do accumulate quite a <laughs> an inventory of people that you don't necessarily talk to every day, but. You know, every now and again, you know, they've got something on and they want you to be a part of it, which, you you know, it's a great pleasure to be and and vice versa. So, yeah. When you were with the Neville brothers, and with, I presume that was before they played football. Yeah, they were only young. In fact, they were the first inductees. And that that year was um, going back a ways. That would have been 92. Um, and, and Gary and Phil were both, well, I think Phil was like under 15s England cricket player and obviously represented uh, footy as well. And both were like the first induction into the young man United squad at the time. Um, so it was kind of like the formation of, of the English Premier League and in particular their youth academies and stuff that where it was becoming really professional. Um, yeah. So it was quite, quite an interesting time for both those boys because they'd, they were living in Berry with their with their father Neville Neville and their sister Trace and Mum. And every Sunday I'd go down to have Sunday roast. And the big occasion, of course, because pay TV wasn't you know such a big factor then, it was only just starting to emerge, is that we'd have pay TV in his house and we could watch all the football games and and all the the, the games which otherwise weren't free to air at that particular time. So that's my favorite memory of just walking <laughs> down from Greenmount to Berry. Um, having Sunday roast and watching the footy with the boys. If you could trade lives with anyone for one day, who would it be and why? Oh, <laughs> tough questions on this podcast, Matt. Yeah, tough indeed. Uh, I mean, I'd be fascinated um, to be to be the Catholic Pope for a day. Um, you know, I think to to work and operate within a realm of 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 talking to. Um, a third of the global population and being figurehead in a spiritual sense, I think would be a really unique uh, undertaking. I probably would be pleased at the end of that 24 hours to hand it back. <laughs> um, 
but imagine sort of you know the life of an individual that's on a different realm of 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 activities. It'd be super interesting. So on to your cricketing career now, and who were your sporting heroes growing up, and how did you get into cricket in the first place? Yeah, well, ironically, how I grew up loving the game was actually listening to the radio because growing up in in the bush, we didn't have uh, free-to-air television. Um, And it got taken away from the national um, broadcast platform, which was the ABC at the time. So I'd listen to to shows like Test Match Special, for example, and listen to the great Henry Blofield discuss, you know, various matters of the game when it was played, the Ashes were getting played over in England or Test Match Special, which is our um, um, variety here, is, is called ABC Grandstand. And I'd sneak up to the tractor in the middle of the night or or I'd be working the tractor and, and on it had a transistor radio, which I'd tune into the ABC and listen to the game. Um, and, and then my hero was was really my my brother, um, who was five years my elder. So it became kind of our game. I mean, we grew up on a on a, a property that had a 10-acre house block um, and the rest of the property was sort of sprawling all over the valley. Um, so that that was curated by us my brother and I it was it was built and hand netted by my dad and, and we'd help him you know construct that net uh, and then we'd get about playing our own version of cricket um, and then on the weekends it was community driven so there was a very strong um, s- small but strong uh, pathways uh, uh, and club system in in Kingroy where I grew up so the weekends were just all footy and all cricket, both of those two codes. There was no other room for any other sports. That was it. And, and I, I suppose in that way, I just fell in love with with the game of what it stood for in community before it even what it stood for just purely as the game, a chance for social activity to happen, uh, men and women coming out of their own properties, which were pretty much isolated, um, and coming together and, and and playing the game of cricket and all the usual suspects would follow, you know, the teas, you know, the, the luncheon breaks and, you know, those things that kind of all, all led to, you know, community coming together at cricket. Uh, the first time I saw a, a live game of cricket um, was when I was 11 and I travelled down to the Big Smoke. I was involved in a coaching uh, clinic with a famous uh, Queensland player called Sam Trimble. Didn't play a lot for Australia, but was a really, really good first-class cricketer um, and he had a coaching clinic at the Gabba. So I was the youngest person to ever attend his clinic and I stayed there and it was an Ashes game that was played. And I remember in the old days of the Gabba, there was, of course, a, a, a greyhound racetrack that circumnavigated the Oval uh, and they allowed at that point in time us as spectators to go up onto that uh, out, out that little greyhound patch and the first person that I've ever sledged was Gladstone Small. <laughs> so I honed my sledging skills on Gladstone Small as a as a as a young Australian, like loving the Battle of the Ashes. It was just brilliant. Growing up as a teenager, you weren't the only World Cup winner in your school, were you? No, I mean Eelsey, that's right. I mean, Eelsey was uh the year above me at, at a college called Morris College at Ashgrove and I had my my final two years of education, secondary education, um, before education at that school. Uh, and Eelsey was a senior senior leader. He was the first eleven cricketer, and a, you know, obviously an exceptional football player. Um, but yeah, that 
you know, Ashgrove Mile School's got a, a richer history of rugby players. It's a big rugby school. Um, I'm a lone duck when it comes to test match cricket, but hope, hopefully we'll produce some more over the years to come. But fantastic opportunity for me. And I must admit, you know, it's funny how life changes because I, I went to Maris College Ashgrove, a boarding school, three hours away from my home. As I just mentioned how much I loved living in the country life, I literally went kicking and screaming to boarding school. I did not <laughs> want to go. I love that life so much. But as it turned out, you know, it was just such a good finishing school and and really set me up around, you know, integrating to, um, to community, integrating to, you know, fellow colleagues. It was a tough environment. You know, imagine going in grade 11 and grade 12 when all these friendship groups have been established and I was kind of the new kid on the block and was pretty good at sport and all of a sudden, you know, I was – the gloves were on well <laughs> inside the first couple of days and had to sort of settle into that life. And it was tough, but it was, a, it was definitely, you know, a great, a, a, you know, a really good life lessons and toughened me up a bit to, for what was to come. You signed for Queensland in 1991. What was that like to become a professional, professional crick- cricketer? It was a super exciting experience. It wasn't necessarily a lifetime aim to play for Queensland, so I had a bit of catching up to do in terms of my own skill sets and my own development um, coming out of, you know, regional Australia where cricket, you know, wasn't played like to the same level as what it was in the big smoke of a city like Brisbane or Sydney or Melbourne. Um, But I had raw talent and natural ability, which was blessed, blessed and part of my life, which i you know, I've been thanking God for ever since the day that he put a cricket bat in my hand. Um, but it's, yeah, it was exciting. And at the same time, I was a little scared. I was a little intimidated by, you know, things like crowds. You know, the only crowd that we ever had was the dogs on the side of the ground, um, little, let alone, you know, having a, a stadium full of people and a packed house. So I was a little scared and a little fearful of, you know, the expectation that was put on you as a professional athlete. Um, but it was just one of those things where you get gradually get into it and you start to have some success and you start to feel your way into an environment and feel comfortable. And when you feel comfortable, you start to feel confident. And when you feel confident, you start to change the game. So that was kind of the transition and it all sounds very easy, but that was probably, you know, an eight year period that I've just described there between starting a game feeling comfortable comfortable and confident in the game and then being in a position to represent my country because of those factors. And then a few years later, you made your, your debut for Australia in 1994 against South Africa. So what are your memories of making your debut and getting your, your bag of green? You know, that actually happened in 93, the receiving of my bag of green, because they were presented in those days not by a famous ex-cricketer or personality. They were they were actually posted in the mail to you and you used to, used to get that post when you made the tour. So uh, I made the 1993 Ashes tour uh, and I played, you know, a couple of one-day internationals for Australia, uh, missed out on the test spot. So as you rightly said, um, my first game proper was with the baggy green now confirmed and capped was in 1994. So I had quite a wait to play that first test match. Um, and that also in itself is a, you know, that's a that's a quite a long story because 
a lot of cricket gets played inside a year and a half between when I made my first tour uh, back after February in 1993, and then I'm playing a game at the end of October in 1994. So challenging time as a youngster, uh, exciting time um, to, to, to don the baggy green. I was the um, th- uh, 359th player to do so, something which, you know, a number – I haven't got a tattoo or I don't necessarily <laughs> <laughs> haven't imprinted myself, but it's certainly imprinted on my brain the importance of that number and the importance then of, you know, not only receiving the baggy green but the honour of being able to represent your country in a way that's befitting of the country itself, which is – a country that values cricket, it values a great fighting spirit, it values its its country and its heritage, um, and it's proud to represent his country. And, and look, you know, that tour in particular was a time when cricket really resonated globally because it was the first tour post-apartheid as well. So there was a political movement that was really underway uh, where cricket once again managed to levitate across the broadest category of sport and into the the commonality between countries and the importance around that social change issue that was happening in and around the apartheid era. Uh, And I got an opportunity to to meet Nelson Mandela on a few different occasions and, you know, to meet a man of that sort of calibre and to be a part of a tour and to be not only part of a tour but playing my first test match was an incredibly special moment and one that I'll never, ever forget. And, And more than the cricket itself, to see black and white come together in one country was just the most incredible spiritual walk that I've been on on a sporting field. Truly magnificent. Um, you were then in uh, out of the Australian side for four or five years. Mm-hmm. What was that a difference? time for you in your career mm-hmm. was that a difficult time for you in your career mm. yeah thanks after it was a very <laughs> very difficult time thanks for reminding me <laughs> <laughs> yeah look it was it was it was difficult but um by the same token it was super rewarding because i i, I think we don't know what happens in life and the reality is that messengers come in two ways. They come through good people, good messengers, and they come through messages which are more challenging and difficult to handle and deal. And you tend to learn a lot more and, you, and the learning curve is very steep when it comes to those difficult messengers in your life. And so with that difficulty come, came an attitude that I've inherited ever since, and that is just to get progressively better every day, to remain very focused on the moment, um, very in tune with with myself and my environment, and to take on the blessings of the day as opposed to you know thinking way too far ahead. So challenging for sure, but equally rewarding. And I and I'd go as far as to say actually that they were my favourite years of cricket. It's funny how you learn to you learn to embrace, embrace those things that you find most difficult and most challenging, and find a solution to because. It's so rewarding when you do. And if it was easy, everyone would do it, wouldn't they? So, you know, for mine, I find that, you know, really inspirational part of my life to be able to manage those challenges, you know, to be able to to prove to myself more than anyone else that the possibilities were endless if I had the right mindset. 
And then when you came back into the team, you hit some really good form becoming the first batsman to score a thousand test runs for five years in a row. So what did you change in your game to produce such a big improvement? Was there anything you can pinpoint that projected you into doing that or not? I got lucky. <laughs> I got really, really lucky. <laughs> yeah, look, there was so look, you know, when you look at those those five years of performance and that potentially two decades of Australian cricket. Um, that were championed by some phenomenal uh, athletes and and extraordinary human beings, actually, full stop. So I say luck tongue-in-cheek, but I honestly do mean that to be around a group of individuals, to be inspired every day, to play outside of my own performance to get better uh, and then be a part of something as unique and special as what that those couple of generations represented meant that I was born into an extremely lucky period of Australian cricket. Um, and and that made me a better player. It made me a better person. It made me a better player. Um, and it kept inspiring me to every day, as I just mentioned before, just become a little better, you know, to not rest in terms of my own skills, but to acquire a different set of skills. And, and they on any given day can be so different because, the beauty about cricket is that you never play on a on on a common surface. Every day is slightly different. Every surface slightly different. Every bowling lineup and every ball is as dangerous as the last one. So it's actually, even though it's it's a game where you can look back and analyze a certain period, and you go, "Yep, there's a thousand runs in those periods over that five year period." The reality is that that every ball was a different event through that period. And so the moment that I stopped watching that ball became an area of vulnerability, you know. So there was a great lessons in terms of my own persistence and discipline towards improvement. Um, and and I think having fun was the the key ingredient to it all. Finding fun, even if I was challenged, uh, which naturally you are as a professional athlete, because it's not just what you're doing. Players are actually learning you and wanting to to beat beat up on you. So you've got to be one step ahead of the game. You then score um, 380. 380 in and innings. Innings, which is the second high test score of all time. What are your memories of that? Yeah, the the it's funny how, you know, one innings like that can change your life forever to the point now where the, the Hados 380 is now a computer game, which I'm launching on the 7th of December. You know, it's just such a lucky number, 380. Who would have ever thought? Um, at, at the time, you know, when I was playing, playing, I, I, was, I was completely, it was the first game back of the summer and I was... Uh, not even going to play the game because uh, I'd injured my back in the lead up to the game and I basically had to beg the physiotherapist to pass me in this this dodgy fitness test um, that he that he that he put me through um, and I just said mate trust me I can do this and he went all right no worries um, and as luck would turn out the only reason why I started playing the way I did was because one I didn't want to run and two, I sort of had to clear my front leg and swing through the line of the ball because my back was hurting so much. <laughs> what happened then was just a miracle because <laughs> everything started hitting the middle of the bat. So literally for 11 hours, 
I can't remember miss hitting a ball apart from the one I got out on on 380. So, you know, just sometimes things in life just happen, don't they, where it's almost like a higher being is is touching you to go, this is what I want you to be doing. It was out of my control that day, I can assure you of that. But I'm very pleased and very humbled because of it, because it's changed my life forever. And how secretly, deep down, how annoyed were you with Brian Lara just beating it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I get, I do get asked that question a lot. But, you know, I, I suppose if you could understand how reluctant I was to be a world record holder, <laughs> it, would give you some, it, it would give you some context as to how relieved I was that I wasn't when Brian actually um, passed that total. Um, and to my other friends like Steve War, who was begging me to continue batting, um, and I was at that point where I was like, Stephen, we just need to declare and and we've got enough runs. We have millions of runs. He's like, nah, we've still got plenty of time. You're smashing them. You're batting so quick it doesn't really matter. There's still heaps of time in the game. Just go on and bat. So there was there was some frustration, I think, from my players, my fellow players, as opposed to what I was trying to achieve. I think 11 hours of batting is quite enough, don't you? <laughs> so we've got some really exciting news for the TWS Sports Podcast. We've been shortlisted for a Sports Podcast Award, which is absolutely incredible opportunity for the podcast. So the Sports Podcast Awards are recognised globally. So... If you have a sports podcast, you can enter, and there are hundreds of thousands of sports podcasts around the world. And over Christmas, the judges shortlisted us to the final eight. So we are in the best equality and social impact category. We're up against some great podcasts from the BBC. There's one about the Olympics, and there's lots of other fantastic podcasts. And it's down to the public to vote for a winner. So we really need you to vote for us if you can. If you just go on www sportspodcastawards.com and then look into the best equality and social impact category and please 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 drop TWS Sports Podcast a vote we'd really really appreciate it Tom come to you first how do you feel being shortlisted for for such an award well I'm very grateful for it and I think it's an achievement for all of us um, to go hit that milestone really so and also uh, like already mentioned please make sure to vote everyone it is so just an incredible achievement for a small special school in, in England to be shortlisted for an award against these huge TV corporations and, and huge other podcasts such as the Olympics and the BBC. Just incredible. So we really, really need all our listeners to vote. Please tell your friends and your families and your colleagues to vote as well. It's really simple to do. So just head to www.sportspodcastawards.com, register, search for the best equality and social impact category it does only take one two minutes and really really appreciate your vote after i come to you what how do you feel about being shortlisted for this award um actually um that award we give us like um we try everything we want like me watkins adam we supported to like uh, the award um ceremony because um yeah we've done uh, we're proud of us Everyone we're proud. Yeah, definitely. We are very proud. I'm very proud of you boys because it just shows how much your hard work and determination and skills have developed and how it's now been recognised by people globally, how how good the podcast that you host is. 
So it's down to you, you two boys and your hard work. So congratulations on your shortlisted boys. But we want to win, don't we? So please, please vote for us. And we really, really appreciate all your support. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Um, we, me and Avatar was doing a bit of research yesterday and we read that in 2000, you and Andrew Simons went fishing and got into a bit of trouble. Yeah, we flipped our boat over in a, in a, in a, um, a passage of sea called South Passage Bar, which is in between two islands off the coast of Brisbane, about 21 kilometres off the coast of Brisbane. And we flipped over in the dark, um, hit a wave and the motor stopped working and then it capsized our vessel and we had to swim for our lives. We swam for about an hour with another friend that couldn't swim very well. After a while, he just knocked up because of the tide and the wind and the waves and it was treacherous conditions. Um, and shark, notoriously very shark friendly as well. Um, but luckily, again, someone, a hand on our shoulders, you know, pushed us in the right direction and we got ashore after that hour swim. Um, shocked, relieved um, <laughs> and just, you know, completely, um, you know, in awe of what had just happened. So, so we were very lucky and there's been multiple souls since that have lost their life on that exact same passage of water. We were fortunate on that day to have gone on our side. That's all I can say. We were just so lucky. And when again, when we do our research, we came up with um, a, a newsline head, newspaper heading kept coming up about you, and the heading was Matthew Hayden naked on top of Table Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> was that? Was that? I can would, you imagine that? Can you imagine yeah. that now? Oh so, <laughs> social, so, social media. So why was Matthew Hayden naked on top of Table Mountain? <laughs> Well, we used to sing our team song in different locations, you know. So we'd sing it, we'd sing it in nightclubs every now and again. We'd sing it on the side of cliffs. We'd sing it in dressing room mainly, thankfully. Uh, but this one night, we thought we'd sing it on top of Tabletop Mountain. So in the moment, I I had the Australian flag wrapped around me, and I'm on top of the Tabletop Mountain. Got <laughs> a stitch stitch of clothes on me, apart from the Australian flag, which is probably some sort of criminal uh, activity and sailing on the way up to, to Tabletop Mountain on this cable car before we sung the team songs. <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, the things we do when we're excited and after a big win, it's crazy. Yeah, I bet you're glad there wasn't mobile phones and cameras and social pa- media back then. Paparazzi. <laughs> they would have wanted to have a big Zoom lens anyway. Put it that way. <laughs> so, maybe I was yeah. safe. You played in the number of Ashes season what are you your memories of playing in the ashes I have a lot of ashes memories um i played more ashes series than i did any other series um so i would have played at least at least four probably five ashes series hmm. um let me just think about that two two at least away two away and maybe three at home yeah so i mean the Ashes memories is that we we were um, incredibly successful during that era. It was really only the 2005 series that that we messed up as a side, and England played extremely well. I mean, their bowling attack was superb. And for the first time, we really felt challenged in that series for a number of reasons. Firstly, we'd lost Glenn McGrath ahead of the Edgbaston Test match, but we also felt that under Michael Vaughan, 
that they were much uh, more knitted and committed to each other's side, loyal to each other, something that Australia was formidable over that uh, period of time of cricket. And uh, in particular, from my perspective, you know, my, my enemies are always going to be fast bowlers. So, you know, there was Hoggard and Harmison and Jones and, <clears throat> and of course, big Freddie Flintoff and uh, Ashley Giles. So, you know, there was a really good bowling attack and, and they all stuck together. They all knew their roles very well and they became you know, a real force. Um, and with that Duke ball in particular, it's always hard for us Aussies to come over in those conditions when we're used to balls bouncing, sailing over the top of off stump and not really swinging that much. The kookaburra ball does not swing that very much. So when you get that juke ball and it starts swinging around, you know, it's really hard work for us. So um, kudos to England in that series. That was probably, even though we lost, sadistically, it was actually probably one of my favourite Ashes series because for the first time, not only, not only were we challenged, but we saw you know, the might of England, you know, come together um, in a way that finally dusted up the Aussies. And, uh, you know, we weren't used to that. We didn't like it um, to the point that we kind of like called the crisis discussion when we got home. Um, it was like a boot camp set up and we were plotting the way that we were going to turn around this dreadful loss to, to, uh, to England. Um, so it gave us an incentive to be better the next time that we that we struck you as well. And, again, that's why you play sport. Like, if you won all the time, you wouldn't appreciate the game, you know. So when you get dusted up, you have to pick your jaw off the floor, you have to dust yourself off, you have to get back into your mindset and your game, and you have to work out a way to get better. As an English fan, I do want to talk about the 2005 Ashes One more question, if that's okay with you. Yeah, um, Obviously, it was a fantastic series for England, but it must have been a fantastic series to play. And even though you were on the losing team, because since watching cricket, I've never seen a series so close. Every test match was close. I think the Edgebaston um, game you lost, or England won by one run. I think there was two or three other games where either you won or England won by such a fine margin. What was it like to play in? And what was it like to play in England with the Barmy Army and things like that? Was it a good experience for you? Yeah, I always found England a very challenging environment to play test cricket in because there's so much passion and emotion. I mean, I don't think I don't think England is an easy place, you know, for any touring side because you have a number of key factors. Firstly, you have the old the old guard. I mean, England is an extremely tribal nation. I mean, you look at the you look at other countries like Pakistan, for example, that have you know, four distinct kind of tribes within the regions of Pakistan. India has, you know, hundreds of different, um, you know, tribes and multiple different dialects as well, you know, across the, their, their, their country. Uh, and Australia is a little different to that. It doesn't, it's not as tribal. It, it's kind of one country. Our first Australians are, in fact, a country of many dialogues. There's 187 different countries within Australia as the first Australians or Indigenous Australia. So they're used to that. But, you know, I guess we're a bits and pieces type of nation brought together by one country. We have expat community patronised patronized Australia right back to the gold rush days, you know, where Chinese were a big part of that, uh, the foundation of Australia. So for us, 
it, it's very challenging when we come to an environment like England where cricket it, it unites the tribes of England. <laughs> no longer are they the Manchester, you know, crowd or, you know, the Liverpool crowd or the Yorkie crowd. They're one nation. So when that Barmy army starts to sing and chant and they can smell Aussie blood, uh, and so too can the tabloids of, of of England as well, and they start digging up all the ghosts around that. It becomes quite difficult, um, and so that challenge was kind of in that series was was no more higher because if you remember back to that series, we won the first Test match convincingly at, at Lords. In fact, we hadn't lost a Test match there for twenty two years, so that was kind of like the home of cricket was our home of cricket. Yeah. And then when we went to Edgbaston and we lost that toss and you could see Vaughty smirking away in the background because Australia decided to bowl first, something it never does, ever. <laughs> you can see you're so happy about it. And Treskothic, you know, got off to, you know, brilliant start, just start smash, smashing us. So you could sense at that point with the loss of McGrath stepping on the ball and the momentum going into that match that we had a game on our hands. And finally, England was no longer that, that, that nation that didn't believe. It actually believed that it could start to win and it, and it started to kind of humanise us as players, which otherwise we felt revered over, you know, a decade where they just, you could sense that there was no belief in the camp. You could sense that they didn't really, they, they didn't want to lose badly to us, but they also knew they couldn't win. Whereas Edgbaston Test was the was the moment where they thought, "Wow, we can actually we can actually dent this side. We we've got this," and that form then you know took shape, you know, at Headingley and 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 um, Nottinghamshire, uh, and then finally you know where it was an all drawn series at at, uh, at 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 Surrey at the Oval. Then the weather started to come. And the weather, the weather gods started to beat their chests as much as what the Obama army did, <laughs> and we and we felt that pressure, and and we just, you know, we just couldn't, you know, we couldn't make up time, even though we we tried really hard, we, we just we couldn't do it. As great as that side was, it for once was impenetrable. So I can imagine from your point of view, yeah, you guys would have been licking your choppers seeing us go down. <laughs> No, not at all. Uh, and we're not going to talk about the next, the 2006 Ashes series. We'll skip over that bit. Well, it was too short <laughs> to talk about. It only lasted 11 days. So. <laughs> no, we're not, that must have been from losing your first Ashes series for, for quite a long time to then smashing England 5-0 must have been an incredible comeback and experience. Yeah, it, it was um, It was incredible. Um, it, was, it was an experience where... The, the England experience was that, that we knew that we were, you know, five, ten percent off our, off anywhere near our best. And even on an individual note, and I knew that as an opening batsman setting the tone of play, I felt like I, I, I did that to a point, but then I got so many 20s and 30s. I always got a start in series, but I couldn't actually go on and position my team to a point where, you know we were invincible, so it, that hurt, and I was I was wounded because of it. Um, and look, I had a bit of bad luck actually going into that that last series in two thousand and six as well, because I got I went for a run up at our country property, and I got bit by a dog, 
about two two and a half weeks out from the from the uh, first test in Brisbane, and I was really surprised that I play because I couldn't walk for a bit. The dog had actually penetrated my Achilles, um, yeah. and so I kind of I hit that summer as well in great shape. Um, but the the dog incident kind of just you know it just took the wind out of my sails. So it really took until the third test match for me to find my feet um, in that particular series. I was just a bit underdone and undercooked. Um, so what was great, I mean, even though that's a bad memory for me personally, you know, our, our team was just so hurt and, and so keen to make amends that, you know, it would have taken two cricket teams to beat us in, in that condition. We had our heckles up. And a bit like that dog that bit me, we went in for the kill. <laughs> and what was it like during the late 90s and early 2000s, that Australian team with yourself, Langer, Ponton, War Brothers, Warren, Lee, McGrath, Gilchrist, all 11, well, probably 15 of you were, were world-class. What was it like to play in such a strong team where every single individual was at the top of their game? Yeah, there's a great momentum that happens when you've got 100% confidence when you look at the bloke that's beside you, especially when it comes to the middle and have that. It was a supreme confidence knowing that if you even got yourself in trouble, there was always going to have them, they were always going to have their day. You know, so if if Langer didn't get runs, Ponting inevitably would. If Ponting didn't get runs, well, Martin or the War Brothers or you know, Clark or whoever it was during that era, Hussey, you know, they just, they were all just superb players. And then the icing on the cake for us at number seven was Adam Gilchrist that, you know, he'd come in and and do what he did to you guys in Perth, you know, to score, you know, that remarkable hundred that he scored over there within the space of just, you know, 30 or 40 balls. It was just, they had, we had not only game changes, we had, we had cyclonic momentum shifters and that was with both bat and ball. When you look at our side, you know, one of the things that we probably didn't need because we always had the one formula and that was to play three quicks and Shane Warne and a bits and pieces all around to whoever that would be. <clears throat> it might be Mark War or Steve War would bowl a few or Andrew Simons. Um, you know, there was always someone to come in and chip in and bowl. But those three or those four bowlers were solid. Like when he played right through that era and he was a dominating force. McGrath played right through that era and he was a dominating force. In and out a little bit with Brett Lee um, at times with injury, but he was a magnificent Ashes bowler. He bowled 160 Thunderbolts. Like everyone jumps up and down and says, oh, 135, that's quick. Well, you can add another 25 to that and you've got <laughs> Brett Lee and, and Shoah Bakhtar, you know, and not only bowling straight rockets, they were bowling swing rockets as well. So... Superb, Adam. Um, you've got, you know, guys like Jason Gillespie, for example, that, you know, over 250 test wickets, but you wouldn't notice him because he was he had the shadow of of McGrath looming over the top of him or a leave looming over the top of him. And fringe players in that era are probably why this this era in particular was just unbelievable. You know, sitting in the wings, guys like Michael Kasswich, Andy Bickle. Uh, from a batting sense, you probably had six or seven guys, Lehman, Law, Siddons, uh, Cox, uh, Love, um, 
Brad Hodge, you know, you could basically name a full second 11 that would have been as good as anyone that was going around, you know, the international circuit at that time. So we had confidence in the team. We had pressure from outside the team to keep pushing us to make better, to create this perfect storm around a lean, hungry, mean um, and competitive uh, playing eleven, which always had the pressure of being dropped because there was plenty of other people's chomping at the bit behind you. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned a few bowlers there. Again, I this is something I didn't realise, but yesterday I saw Matthew Hayden doing a little bit. He bowled 10 overs, in test overs. I was a secret <laughs> weapon, mate, to try and break the Dravid and uh, VBAD's Laxman partnership, which failed miserably, but... <laughs> And mate, nothing ventured, nothing gained, eh? So what 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 do you bowl? What was it? Spin, seam? A- absolute tripe. Medium pace tripe. <laughs> so um Although I did I did get I did get Mike Gadding out one time at the home of cricket. Um Hampshire was playing uh Middlesex in a county game and I was brought on to bowl by by Judgy Smith. And uh I actually warned Mike Gadding that. I was going to bounce him, and I had a decent bouncer, and he started he started laughing at me. But I ended up getting him out. He sort of holed out to to um, long on, so that's my most famous uh, <laughs> my most famous wicket at the House of Pain. <laughs> the Glenn McGuire's role in the team was safe then. He was well and truly safe. <laughs> You'd have to be an idiot to be a fast bowler, anyway. Why would you be a bowler? Uh, you must have. Had some more funny times in the changing rooms and away from the cricket pitch. Can you um, recall recall a, a funny story that can share with us, please? <laughs> You've already unveiled my secret. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, I always feel the pressure. I'm not bumble when it comes to funny stories. Yeah. So take us to the in, inside the dressing room then. What who were the who were the characters? Who were the, the laughers, the jokers? Who were the ones that were taking a nick out of each other? Murphy Hughes was probably the greatest asset inside a dressing room that you could ever imagine. That bloke was a lunatic. And I remember <laughs> I remember um rooming with Merv um because Hughes and Hayden, you know, alphabetically were on, you know, the same the same wavelength. So we'd often I'd often room with Merv on tour and I had that privilege in 93 and 94 when there wasn't separate rooms. So um, Merv and I would often get room together. One night we were playing a game down in Bristol, first-class game in 93, and, um, you know, we'd, we'd gone out for a few drinks, which led to a few more drinks, which then led to the fact that we were thirsty, so we needed a few more drinks. <laughs> we, we got home pretty late, uh, way past, you know, the kitchens of a normal sort of, you know, hotel being open and Merv wasn't content. So now he was thirsty and hungry. So he, he reaches down to the room service menu and uh, he picks up the, the dog and bone to reception and um, dials reception and says, uh, I'm hungry. Can I order some room service? Yeah, yeah, sure. What, what, what would you like, sir? And he said, I just like the menu. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll send my note. He said, no, no. I want the menu. <laughs> what do you mean? I said, he said, he said, well, you know what? I think you I think you're the home of speaking effing English. So uh, I'm pretty sure you understand what I'm saying. I want the, I want the whole I want the whole menu. 
at that time, there was like chips and, you know, the club sandwiches and a burger. And he had about 15 items that came up. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I bet that was, was a... He was, he was on what they call a seafood diet. Seafood. <laughs> I bet that was a sore head in the morning. And a... <laughs> yeah, but Merv was a, you know, he was a, he was a fantastic uh, old warrior. And, um, you know, just one of those blokes, those characters inside the dressing room. If you remember back to the first series in 93, there was a, um, there was a, there was a, uh, an advert, uh, yeah, an editorial sort of advertising around Merv and he was dressed up as, as, uh, as what's the name of that, um, the mechanical Terminator. He was dressed up in Terminator on top of the bike and Warty was beside him in all of his leather kit. (laughs) And, it, and, of course, we're sponsored then, ironically, by uh, a famous beer company here in Australia, uh, which now, ironically, is owned by a Kiwi company, but it was called Forex Bitter. So he was kind of the face of Forex Bitter campaigns, <laughs> which, which was just absolutely dead set dangerous for Merv use. The Henshaw's Insurance Group is one of the top 100 independent insurance brokers in the country and is here to bring you peace in mind. We've been in business for over 50 years and have offices in Newport, Shrewsbury and Stafford. Our 45 plus strong team deals with both business and personal insurance and we offer a free, no obligation, consultations and quotations. So give us a call today. You retired from the national cricket in 2009. Why do you... Decide. Decide to um, retire. In Australia, we're pretty strict on um, on when you retire. They don't tend to let you play on your own turf. You know, you you basically you play within windows. So, in other words, in one day cricket, you'll tend to play two way World Cup, and then even if you're on top of your game, if they don't feel that you can make the next World Cup they'll start to blood and start to, you know, develop their assets leading up into that World Cup. So in 2009, at the end of the South African series, you know, it was, it was kind of like mid, mid in between, you know, an Ashes series and I couldn't see myself going, you know, another Ashes series. And I think that was in um, at the end of 2009. I couldn't see myself reaching that. Um, and, and plus, by well, that stage, I kind of felt the culture was starting to shift away from, you know, our 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 team. Ricky and I were the last of our era to 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 really be, you know, in that position to be playing. All of our mates had retired. Gilly retired the year before me. Um, Alfie Warney and um, and uh, Pidge retired the year before that. So looking around the dressing room, all of a sudden, your best mates weren't there, and you know, cricket was fun still loved the game but there's nothing better than playing a game with your best mates and when they're not there you start to sort of second guess yourself so it really was a combination of just selflessly falling on my sword around what I thought uh, was going to be projected towards the next Ashes series um, and f- and finding a way to, you know to to just quietly on reflection go yep that's the right time um, which is a tough decision to make because, one, there's a lot at stake, especially at that stage. You're earning, you know, millions of dollars a year playing playing the game. 
but when you really search your heart, if you're not loving it and you don't you don't want to do all the hard work, it doesn't matter what anyone's paying you, you've yeah. still got to front up every day to the challenge of and the rigors of a of a you know professional playing life, which is you know not easy. So it was pretty inevitable actually, and I was conclusive that I that I was I'd had enough. Well, looking back at your career then, which is obviously a very successful career, how would how would you explain, how would you describe your career in sort of a, a few sentences or a few words? You must be extremely proud. Yeah, definitely very proud. Um, I mean, I was extremely supported by an incredible family for a start. I, you know, I married my wife when I was when I was quite young and and we grew up together and our kids grew up with me as well. Um, so that was a great part, you know, away from the sporting field that that you know, we just really, you know, had a successful partnership off the field. But I think on the field, that also, that part, that successful partnership, I think, really defined my life, whether it was batting with Alfie or batting with uh, uh, Ricky or, in fact, batting with Adam Gilchrist. You know, we always had a great top three combination in both test cricket and one-day cricket and T20 cricket. So built on successful partnerships, built on legacy of friendships and and, and built on the legacy, I think, of just trying to get the most out of myself um, and therefore the most out of the team and driving outcomes for both. Um, that, they're the things that I'm most proud of. It wasn't easy, you know, like I wasn't, I don't consider myself to be a naturally, you know, talented individual. I had to really work hard to achieve, you know, the outcomes that I wanted out of the game. Or in fact, that's mirrored my life full stop. You know, there's nothing that replaces hard work. Since retiring from international cricket, you went and played a few 2020 seasons in the IPL. How did you find that and what was the difference in like culture and, and style of play living in living and playing in India? Yeah, it, I was lucky enough post-2009 to st- still, as I said, have petrol in my tank. Um, and I launched both the inaugural uh, competition of the IPL, playing with Chennai Super Kings. MS Dhoni was my captain. Um, and I was sort of like the unofficial vice captain. So he'd captain the Indian domestic players and I'd sort of captain the, the international players, of which we had a couple of crackers, um, including Freddie Flintoff. Um, and that culture was very similar to the culture that I grew up in, just pure love of the game, not interested in all the bells and whistles, um, a very, very strong and loving and supporting cricket community in Tamil Nadu, easily the most passionate community of cricket lovers that I've come across in my time. They are just devoted to the game. Um, so to be playing around in that backyard for three years was unbelievable. Um, but then I think, um, you know, come again, like launching the Big Bash League here in Australia, playing for the Brisbane Heat. Uh, by that stage, I'd, I'd had my business shoulders on as well. So not only as a player, but bringing to life all the, the partners that, that were involved in the Brisbane Heat from the foundation of that. Um, and including, you know, involving a fan base, my own fan base, migrating them over to that competition was very, very special. And I suppose I've never really let that side of it go because I've been a part of every IPL um, in one way or another as a broadcaster player. Um, and, and that's been, you know, such a great way for me to still stay engaged in the game. You have um, recently recently become a battle coach for Pakistan. How you do that role coming about and do you enjoy it? Yeah, it's a really, it's a great challenge for me to be involved in 
once again, I, I didn't think there was a new chapter in my cricketing um, journey, but the one that I had with my engagement around the World Cup um, with Pakistan cricket was sensational as a batting consultant. I just I love to be able to to narrate the game as a broadcaster, but there's something even more special about being inside the dressing room and being able to influence and shape the game as opposed to just commenting on the game. So that was very special. And, and I guess my expectations were quite quite low. My only expectations was to have no expectations other than to form a really good connection with the people that I was involved with, both from a management sense, a country sense, because I've never toured Pakistan, um, and also um, just from a playing point of view, to be able to talk directly into world-class players and shape and influence the way that they think. And hopefully I value-added in, in some ways to that to that um, whole unit becoming a better unit, you know, a more solid unit, teaching teaching and, and creating opportunities around my own learnings of the game, something, as we've discussed, I worked really hard for. So it was a great experience and I really loved it. Take me to that. I might be wrong. I think I'm, I think I'm right. That first game of the T20, Pakistan v India, Pakistan won, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, they. Yeah. They, How they, was that then to beat to beat a massive rival in India? Well, we we talk about the Ashes, don't we, as our our premier um, sporting rivalry, the old foe versus the convicts, and um, yeah, it was sensational. You know, being, as we've discussed um, numerous times uh, on the podcast about that rivalry, that nothing. It nothing shapes or even comes close to the euphoria of an Indian-Pakistan rivalry. It is simply just next-level um, support. I mean, for a start, I mean, England is a country of, what, 85 million people? And we're a country of 25 million people. So we've got over just a tick over 100 million people. Pakistan's got 250 million people. And India's got 1.4 billion people. So, you know, there's basically you know, a, a, a third of the, the global population, you know, right there watching one game of cricket and you honestly feel that human emotion. You know, it's just a phenomenal level of interest and support and 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 I was just wrapped to be a part of it because on our end, the Pakistan end, even though we won, we we also had this wonderful calmness inside the dressing room which was, I think influenced by Islam and and the boys' devotion to to Allah and and that consistency and that purpose that sort of that was the glue of the team, which also glued them to Pakistan as well. And uh, I felt really privileged to be a part of that. I, I thought it was an extremely inspiring um, event, and and I'll never forget that. It was extraordinary. It must have been as well a contrast of emotions for you, especially in the semi final losing to Australia so obviously disappointing in losing but then you must be obviously very happy that Australia won how did you feel in the semi-final and final losing to Australia well I think like any conflict of interests um, you just have to embrace it meaning that of course I want Australia to win um, but by the same token I'm conflicted because of course I want Pakistan to win because not only is that my job but I've been now with this campaign through the course of the World Cup, I've been through the highs of their and the challenges, and their commitment, and and that's what I'm there to achieve. And so, yeah, it was really disappointing, 
especially when you consider that when it's all said and done, we didn't actually lose that game with either bat and ball. We lost that game simply because of our fielding. <laughs> At any time, if any one of those opportunities in the, in the Australia innings were taken, Australia were out of the game. That's how close we were. You know, so I suppose that inspires and aspires a sporting culture like Pakistan to continue its growth trajectory. It's been largely forgotten about Pakistan in terms of where it's positioned in global cricket because it's just had no cricket in its own country for so long, which is really disappointing. Australia, I think, goes there at the end of February after the first time in 18 years. You know, so to have a to have a cricketing population like Pakistan with a single focus on their love of cricket, 250 million people loving the game of cricket, to be denied of that is very sad. So I'm hoping that not only through through COVID and the vaccination schemes and us all sort of opening up as a global community because of the pandemic, as it lifts or shifts, I'm also hoping that Pakistan gets more tours because that'll be a very great day for world cricket. Looking to Australia now and... After you you started coaching, is coaching Australia as a batting coach or the whole team an ambition for you? No, it's not because, um, you know, for me, uh, the summer of cricket here is holiday season. And, uh, you know, I have a 14-year-old and 16-year-old and 19-year-old daughter and the two sons. So, you know, I guess the balance of my life and, you know, I was mentioning my family before in this conversation, they've sacrificed a lot during that summer window. You know, so for me, I'll do the odd game here and there, maybe broadcasting, but otherwise I, you'll you'll see me vanish off the planet and get into my lifestyle of fishing and surfing and fish, you know, just being a part of, you know, family life and beach life in Australia and uh, letting, and, and letting, you know, that window go, you know, knowing that that's my limitations. And I think that's also been a strength of mine over the years as well, is knowing what to be involved in and, and what not to be involved in. So thank you so much for taking the time, Matt. We really, really appreciate you you staying with us and chatting with us. We've um we oh. really, really appreciate that. Uh, no worries. Take care, hey. All right, Bye. thank you. Bye. So after Matt's just gone, how did you feel that podcast went? Uh, amazing. He's he's good, he's a good person though. He talk I'll, my favorite is he's talk about um Climbing the mountains a bit <laughs> naked. <so. laughs> yes, yeah, so he shared a funny story with us, didn't he, about um, being naked at the top of Table Mountain in yeah, South Africa. Which um, a... I think he's lucky that it was a long time ago. Otherwise, it'd be lots of cameras and social media. Yeah. The... So um, luckily, that, or luckily for him, there's no no photo please, evidence of no, it happening. Please. <laughs> Um, yeah, again, it was really good. Matt spoke yeah. really well. I enjoyed his stories about the Ashes and talking yeah. about playing in England and playing mm. in Australia. And I didn't know he he's good friends with the Neville brothers as well. Oh, he I did know that. played cricket with Phil and Gary, didn't he? Yep. So, um, no, really good podcast. Again, after well done. Thank you. Um, you're doing very well on your own in the absence of Tom. Mm. Um, and thank you, everyone, to listen to the podcast. Please continue to listen. Please go and subscribe and, and give us a rating and a review. It really, really helps to grow our podcast. If you want to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Just search TWS Sports Podcast. We release a lot of um, fun games and fun clips of, of our podcasts and have giveaways and quizzes. So please come and join us. It'd be lovely to see you there. And thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you next week. Yep. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. 
This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.